Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And I want to pray because there's a devastating earthquake in Nepal yesterday, and that's one of our five geographic regions we're involved in. There's a missionary home there we support. Uh, Mary Ellen Patini, who's our missionary there, is actually on furlough. She's here. We got report from Puma yesterday that uh, everybody's safe, not, nothing was damaged. Some of the churches that have been planted, uh, I think one church was slightly damaged, but they'll be okay. But 1,400 people, I think, have died, so we want to pray for them. If you're interested, remember this, anytime there's, there's uh, some act like this around the world, Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham, they are a first responder. They're already there. And if you go on SamaritansPurse.com, you can donate and see what's going on. We'll try to keep you up to speed. Uh, I think it's a, a great chance for the church in Nepal to grow. So, Lord, we just thank you for, um, Lord, we wouldn't even know where Nepal is if we weren't believers and supporting there. And, Lord, so many people here have been on the ground there and watched the church grow and flourish. There's pastors there, Lord, uh, who have been pastoring for a year after salvation. And uh, there's just a great work going there, Lord. And I pray that they would galvanize under this and um, that Romans 8, 26, that all things would work for good because they love you and they're called by your name. And we do pray for them and, and the church there in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's reading is found in Luke 7. <clears throat> Verses 36 through 50. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, He freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, 
But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Whenever I hear or read this parable, the only thing I can say is, Wow. People are wowed by Jesus healing and opening blind eyes and raising the dead, and that would wow me too. But here he comes to dinner. And in uh, one little story, it's two verses, this parable, he leaves everybody breathless and solves the conundrum of the ages of who knows God and who doesn't, who's forgiven and who doesn't get forgiveness. And uh, it's just the legacy of Jesus. It's his legend. And uh, for the next two months, we're going to look at the parables of Jesus as recorded by Luke. And parables were one of the more... Uh, familiar teaching methods that Jesus used. And he used it for three reasons. One of the reasons was, is because in the Galilee, the area where he ministered most of the time, they had a literacy rate of about 5%. Now, that doesn't mean the people were stupid, right? Um, They were blue-collar types. They were fishermen, and they worked farms, and they raised their kids, and they didn't have access to scrolls. They weren't near Jerusalem. And many times, Jesus would be out and about teaching And uh, they didn't have Bibles or CD players, so he would have to use illustrations or what we call parables. What is a parable? Well, think of the word construction. Para means to come alongside, like parallel parking or a paralegal. Bola means to cast. So what Jesus would do is take something very familiar in society, like a sower sowing seed, and then he would put it alongside a very deep spiritual truth, and people would never forget it. Now, the important thing about a parable, number two, is that it had to stand the test of time. You know, today preachers use illustrations, or you could buy a book of short parables, and they'll use things that are common in our day, like maybe the iPhone, right? The problem with that illustration is the iPhone in 20 years will probably be in the Smithsonian Institute. It'll be a relic, and no one will ever know it existed because probably we'll just communicate in another way, and I don't know, probably like the Jetsons or something. But... Um, But someone sowing seed or someone losing a coin or having a prodigal child, those are the type of things that stand the test of time, 2,000 years. And then the third reason uh, is often overlooked, and Jesus really answers this. The disciples in chapter 8, verse 9 said, Lord, why do you teach in parables? And he said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, But to the rest, it is given in parables. Now listen to this. It's counterintuitive that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now we get all enthralled by Jesus opening blind eyes until you realize if you just open somebody's eyes physically, but they never see spiritually and they go to hell, then what difference did it really make? The reason Jesus opened physical eyes is to show that he could open spiritual eyes. And many of us in this room have had our spiritual eyes open. But basically Jesus said here that parables are mysteries. In other words, uh, when you become a believer, 
God unlocks the scripture to you. You read a parable and you see great spiritual truth, but then people who are reading the Bible for other reasons, um, it goes the other way. For instance, there's a saying that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Uh, This past Monday, the Eagle signed Tim Tebow. Big story. And I'm off on Monday, so I was riding a lot of errands and I got to listen to sports talk. And, of course, a lot of Christians were calling in saying, Tim Tebow, the reason he's been out of football is because he's a Christian. And that started this big debate. And uh, every once in a while, a Christian would call in and I would wince. Not because it wasn't a great witness, but because I know those radio talk show hosts are trained in argument, and they do that for a living. So this guy calls in, and he goes, oh, you guys don't understand. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I'm like, oh, no. And the talk show host goes, oh, really? You're a Christian? He goes, yeah. He goes, you love God? Yeah. He goes, let me ask you a question. Would you let a gay couple watch your kids? And, of course, the whole conversation just tanks because that's where society's trained to go. Later that night, till 2 in the morning, I was watching debates on YouTube between Dinesh D'Souza and Ravi Zacharias and John Lennox debating Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. And I turned to my wife and I said, you know, do you know why Christians can't win debates? You know, we think they win. But you know why they really can't win? Because at the end of the day, you've got to... Tell people you believe the Bible's true, that you believe in Scripture. And people laugh at that. And Jesus said these parables are like gold. They're mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And to much is given, there'll be more given. And to him who already has, it'll be taken away. There's a beauty in these parables. And we're going to go through them over the next two months. Parables are really stories. And Americans love stories, don't we? I and mean, that's why we spend $10 billion a year going to the movies. We just, we're, we're suckers for stories. A good story needs two things. It needs more than that, but it needs basically two things. It needs a protagonist and it needs an antagonist. The protagonist is the hero, the champion, the person you're rooting for. The antagonist is the villain, the evil person that you want to lose in the end. Now, most of us, when we watch a great story, we put ourselves in the story, don't we? Like, every girl wants to be Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games, right? You know, I had three daughters, and they would watch movies, and they would run upstairs and dress like the character. Every guy wants to be the Wolverine or Superman or the hero. Very rarely do we want to be the villain, right? Unless we're really demented or something, and I don't think we want to be the villain. But if a story's really compelling and well-written, like The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens you will find yourself vacillating between two characters. Yeah, we want to be Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim, but too much of the time we see ourselves as Ebenezer Scrooge. Jesus' parables were this way. Though everybody in the story is convinced they're the woman, there's a lot of Simon the Pharisee in all of us. It's just the basic truth, and this is why Jesus taught them. He didn't teach them to condemn us, but to free us. To make us introspective to the true things of God. It was all about freedom. Sometimes we read these stories and we think, even Jesus loved the woman and hated Simon. No, he loved them both. Just like he loves everyone in this room. He loves all people. People matter to God, and they should matter to us. So this morning, we're going to recline at Simon's table. 
Left arm on the table. We're going to eat with right food, although you couldn't bring food in the sanctuary. We're going to listen to Jesus' parable. And in the next 20 minutes, we're going to decide, are we more like the woman or are we more like Simon? Now, to get started, you need to know something about Eastern hospitality in the first century. If you were to come to my home in the first century and feel really welcome. Did you ever go to a house where people had laid out the red carpet? They have Yankee candles lit, and you can smell salmon cooking, and there's appetizers. You think, wow, they really look forward to me coming. Well, in the ancient world, if you look forward to someone coming, you would run to the door and greet them with a kiss. Both sides, right? You ever see that in Europe or the Middle East? And then your servant would take off their sandals and wash their feet, and you would give them a little flask of olive oil so they could freshen up. Jesus, in verse 44, 45, and verse 46, said Simon did none of these things, though he had invited Jesus. Now, that tells me a lot about Simon. Uh, He was a Pharisee, which meant he was quite wealthy. Um, He was spiritual in some ways. He had probably memorized a lot of scripture, hung around with rabbis, had gone to Jerusalem many times. He not only knew the scriptures, he knew the Mishnah, the oral traditions, the Talmud. And he prided himself on keeping the Sabbath and being separate from sin. But for all of those things, this is a very conflicted man. He's basically spiritually blind. Now this is the hardest thing you and I will ever do, is tell people that go to church, maybe even read the Bible, are religious in some way, and tell them they're spiritually blind. You know, nobody wants to hear that. But just so we can level the playing field, I went to 12 years of religious school. I went to church almost every Sunday. And I have to tell you, I was spiritually blind. I may have known religious things. I may have been a quote-unquote good person. But I was spiritually blind. Now, I want to commend Simon on something. He invites Jesus. He invites Jesus because he's heard him teach and preach. And maybe he's heard him... Uh, out in the marketplace healing people. And he has some kind of curiosity, something intellectual about Jesus that's resonating with him. And he does something more than people even do today. He said, you know what? I'm going to have Jesus over for dinner. There's things he says that I like, like your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. But then there's things I don't like. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He has women in his entourage. But he invites Jesus over. He investigates. It will forever blow my mind in our culture how people will spend months and months and months on the internet and reading, you know, story after story of all information to buy a flat screen TV for their basement. And then when it comes to their eternity, never investigate. Never read the Bible. Never pick up a Christian book. Uh, I applaud people to come to Sizzling Summer or our church and say, hey, we're just investigating things around here. That's wonderful. But how can you go to your grave never investigating who Jesus was and what eternity is all about? So Simon wasn't hostile. He was more like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, some more Pharisees who were receptive and maybe hungering for the things Jesus was saying. And so he invites Jesus to dinner, to see for himself. Now, when he comes to dinner, 
Jesus sits there, and we don't know who's in the room, right? Are the other disciples there? Are the women in Jesus' entourage there? We know this woman's there. Uh, Luke calls her a sinner. That's a very nice way of saying she was a prostitute. Everyone in the town knew this woman. Simon would never have someone like this come through his doors. And uh, Simon sits down, and uh, he draws a conclusion really early. Because, again, this man's blind. And in his mind, he says, if this man, Jesus, were really a prophet, he would know this woman's a sinner and that he's defiled by her touching him. He draws this conclusion. He's blind because he can't see who Jesus really is. He's blind because he can't see who the woman is. He doesn't see a woman. He sees his theology. He doesn't see a woman who maybe was raised by terrible parents or was abused sexually as a child. He doesn't see a a person full of hurts and fears and longings. He just sees a theological conundrum. He sees something to avoid. He doesn't see someone made in the image of God. He's spiritually blind. He doesn't see Jesus as the word of God who came to dwell among us. He's blinded by his own theology. Now, we've all been at dinner where there's this, like, funky tension and no one's talking and everybody's wondering who's going to talk first. And uh, Jesus talks first. Simon, let me tell you a story. There's a creditor, and he had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii. That's a, denarii was about a, uh, 500 denarii was about a year's wage, about 50,000. Another person owed 50, that's about 5,000. The creditor is going to forgive them both. Who will love him more? And Simon says, well, I would suppose the one who has forgiven the larger debt. And he says, you've answered correctly. Now, the parable's brilliant in that Jesus used money as the example because money's universal. And not only is money universal, and by the way, debt's universal, um, but not only is it universal, it would be understood by Simon because Pharisees were wealthy and they thought their wealth was attributed because they had done everything right before God. It's part of their theology. So Jesus hones in. He says, Simon, it looks like sin's on your mind. You think this woman's a sinner. So let me tell you something. Sin's like debt. And when it comes to sin, the bar of God's justice is so high that no one's in the black. Everyone's a debtor to God. Now, Simon understood this. You know, when you talk to people and tell them a sinner, I don't think they're going to argue with you. Most people know they've got skeletons in their closet. Most people know if God's holy, they've sinned. What Jesus introduces that's brand new is a benevolent creditor. And he's the benevolent creditor. He's God. He's the one willing and able to absolve all debt. This would be new information for someone like Simon. This is good news for someone like the woman. That if all of us are sinners and we're all bankrupt and there's a creditor who's going to willingly forgive all sin, wow, that's good news. It's good news to everyone except someone like Simon. See, Simon knew he was a sinner, but this is the way Simon's theology went. It's a lot like people in America. Simon knew there was a gap between him and God, but he was pretty sure that his gap was smaller than this woman's. 
And he was spending his entire life to shorten the gap. Going to the synagogue, going to Jerusalem, giving money to the synagogue, being benevolent, doing kind works, inviting people for dinner, was all being done by Simon in one way or another to shrink the gap. I shared on Easter, a lot of Americans think this way, that somehow God's going to judge on the curve. And because God's going to judge on the curve, we think, oh, there's, there's definitely someone with a larger gap than me. There's always someone out there worse than me, right? And uh, if things even out, I never murdered anyone and uh, never defrauded anyone. So, you know, if, you know, I'm cool with God, he'll be cool with me is kind of the theology of most people. What Jesus revealed that day is that if sin is like debt, then the sins of the immoral, like the woman, have left them bankrupt before God's law. We get that. But likewise, the sins of the respectable men like Simon have rendered them, get this, no less bankrupt. Does everybody understand that? No less bankrupt. See, the idea here is whether you owe 50000 or 500 or a mere $50 if you can't pay, the bill collector's coming. The Bible says we have all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who's never sinned. No, not one. You cannot leave this world sin-free and stand before a holy God. And Jesus, using a simple story about money, solved the question of the ages. But then he asked Simon this question. And by the way, Simon knew he was the one with the smaller debt. He said, Simon, who will forgive more? And he said, I assume the one who owed more. He said, you have answered correctly. And this is where all religion gets altered. Jesus said in verse 46, do you see this woman? I enter your house, you gave me no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. This woman has not ceased kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. This woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, she's the larger debtor, are forgiven, for she loved much, But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying this this woman's sins are forgiven because of her lavish love on Jesus. That can't be what he's saying because that's what Simon has spent his whole life doing. Simon's whole life was doing good things to close the gap. That could not be the reason why this woman was doing what she was doing. What Jesus was saying is that love and devotion is the evidence of someone who has received true forgiveness and can finally spiritually see. Love is the evidence. And and a lack of love is the evidence that someone is still blind. Simon's eyes were still blind. He had not passed in the life. Why? Because he he could not love in the way that was necessary to love someone. 
This woman had not ceased to lavish love on Jesus the entire time. Uh, One other thing you can't make a mistake on. For years I would see these testimonies of warlocks that got saved and people shooting heroin and they were in skid row and we see all these testimonies and they get born again and we think, oh my gosh, these people can really love God because they were forgiven much. But you know, I got saved on a college campus. I wasn't like the most terrible guy in the world so I'll never be able to love God like that because I wasn't forgiven much. That is dead wrong. Dead, dead wrong. What Jesus was saying is we've all been forgiven much. Every sin that's ever been committed, Jesus died for on a cross. We've all been forgiven much. doesn't matter where the gap was. There was a day where we realized, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. And that's the game changer. Now here's the question. Who are you more like? Are you more like the woman or are you more like Simon? Who are you more like? Are you more like the woman or are you more like Simon? People that are like Simon look at God and Christianity and they're still in what I would call the doing mode. I have to do this. I have to do that. If you're like the woman, you realize it's already been done. But that's salvation. Let's take it a step further. I think I'm like the woman. You know, I pastor this church. I get up on Sunday morning. I do all that I do because God loves me and scales in my eyes fell. And that's why I do what I do. That's my fuel. When I give to great Christian causes most of the time, I do it for my love and devotion for God and all that he's done for me. But a lot of the time, I'm like Simon the Pharisee. A lot of the time, I'm interested only in intellectual curiosity. Many times, I'm only inviting people to dinner who are well and respectable and not like that woman. And many times, I'm judging people for their sin. This woman slays us because of her commitment and her vulnerability. She takes an alabaster box of perfume. It would have been a necklace around her neck. It was a tool of her trade. Men would come by. She would break the alabaster box, put perfume on, entice them in. It's how she made her money. She comes into this dinner. First of all, by being there, it's a scandal. When she lets down her hair, that is equally as scandalous. A, A wife in her own home wasn't even allowed to let down her hair. A husband could divorce her. She takes this expensive perfume and begins to anoint Jesus' feet, telling everyone in the room, I now have a new use for this tool. I'm going to take the gifts God has given me and use them for good. And she does all this not to gain Jesus' favor, but because she's already gained his favor. She's driven by his love and forgiveness. And she's willing to let her hair down. Some of you need to let your hair down. You really do. Some of you need to let your hair down and let it go, man. Some of us are so uptight about our faith. We're so rigid. We're so in a box. We see take, people take risks for God. We see somebody like Tim Tebow wears his faith on his sleeve. We get all upset. Um, 
We just never let our hair down. Some of you have never broke your alabaster box of ointment. The remarkable thing about this woman is she was no longer in control. The difference between religion and relationship and true Christianity is where you surrender your control. Simon still wanted to be in control. He was the head of the dinner table. He invited Jesus. He was checking things out. I'm in control. I'm still in control. Nicodemus wanted to be in control. Oh, Jesus, you're a man come from God. Nobody can do miracles like you're doing. Why don't you join our team? (laughs) Nicodemus, I'm not joining your team. In fact, you need to be born again. You can't, you're the teacher in Israel and you can't even see God's kingdom because you still want to be in control. Rich young ruler, in control. The man who wanted to go bury his father and sell land before following Jesus, in control. But true Christianity is where Jesus said it's like finding that pearl and you go and spend everything you have to buy that field. And you surrender control and say, Jesus, take my life because I know where you take me is better than at where I would take it. You become like Zacchaeus who says, I'm giving half my money to the poor and I'm going to restore everyone I've extorted. Jesus didn't die to make people moral. Now, holiness and sanctification is certainly a big part of, of what we're becoming. Don't get me wrong. But he didn't die to make us rule keepers. He didn't die to make us moral. He died to set us free. He died so we could let our hair down, take what we once used for evil, and use it for good, and let the fragrant aroma fill every room that we walk into. This woman was free. This woman left free. And there's something about free people. Now, I've been a Christian for 30-some years now, and I've enjoyed my freedom. And I've looked around the church, and, you know, I've seen trials come and go, and I probably see more than you do because we have a large church, and I'm connected to a lot of people. And I think people that get this, I think people that are like the woman, people that were free at one time, and, you know, it's, it's almost like they're playing with house money now, seem to go through life's trials better. It's the people that their world is rocked when one thing gets out of place who seem to be like Simon, who had this rigid theology of who he was and who God was and what the gap looked like and what God should do. And when a trial comes or something devastating, their whole world gets rocked. But free people like this woman have a way to walk through life and it's still hard and there's still tears. But there's a sense that For all that Jesus has already done, how much more will he do for us? Stuart Briscoe said it best. He said the woman's freedom was not freedom to do what she pleased. It was freedom to do what her forgiver pleased. If you could learn one thing in Christianity, that's all you need. That's all you need to know. The woman's freedom was not freedom to do what she pleased. It was now a freedom to do what her forgiver pleased. This woman would do anything Jesus asked. And that's our fuel. 
She could never forget that he assumed her debt. Not that he was going to hold it over her head as a means of exhorting service or obedience, but rather that he had shown love to her beyond her comprehension, and she loved him because he had first loved her. So her new life was a life free from the bondage and tyranny of trying to please an implacable God and a critical society. It was a life where she was now free to kiss feet, express love, pour gratitude, break uh, precious ointment, and live a life that pleased him. Stuart Briscoe said, There is no knowing what could happen in the church of Jesus Christ if those who attend it could grasp the measure of their forgiveness, the magnitude of the debt Christ assumed, and the resilient sense of freedom. To be released into a life of inhibited gratitude with nothing to do but lovingly and lavishly please the forgiver of their souls would conceivably motivate and mobilize the forgiven people into such a life of worship and service that the world would be dumbstruck and awestruck with the sheer power of their witness and the quality of their lives. I am not a religious person. Look at this room. (laughs) I am not a religious person. I still get the heebie-jeebies if I walk in something that looks like a regular church. I don't like icons, statues, religious candles. I don't like any of it. Do you know why? Because there was a debt I understood that was paid that transcends all of that. All of that. I understand that when Jesus went to the cross and said, it is finished, he freed me of a life to go and do and serve as he's called me to do. Not to be religious. And I am so, so, so amazed at that to this day. I know some of you have come from legalistic backgrounds. And I say it a lot. Legalism failed at the one thing it tried to do, and that's make people holy. Legalistic people are not holy. They're legalistic. They're sour. They're terrible to be around. They don't produce great children or or any of those things. Jesus came to set us free. And free people live to please the one who enlisted them. May we be like the woman. May we look back and say, oh God, one day you absolved me of all my debt. And gave me a life free to live for you. Maybe you got back on the treadmill of doing. Maybe now as a Christian you're trying to still close the gap. Talked to a woman yesterday at a baseball game. She goes, Pastor Bob, I have this overwhelming conviction that I'm lukewarm. How do I know I'm not lukewarm? I said, well, Jesus said he wanted you either hot or cold. So... If you look at Revelation, that church there, that church was people like Simon. People that thought they were doing the right thing. I said, you know why you're not lukewarm? You wouldn't be concerned about it. Lukewarm people aren't worried that they're lukewarm. They're lukewarm. That's why they're lukewarm. (laughs) Forgiven people change the world. Because they're playing with house money. Because God's already done it all. And whatever happens after that is all gravy. I hope we're like the woman. 
I know there's a lot of Simon in us. But let's walk in our freedom. If you don't know Christ this morning, you might be like the woman before she came to Christ. You might be like Simon, respectable. The Bible says we come through the same door. We bow our knee in our hearts. And what we know in our minds goes 18 inches to the heart. And we realize there's a debt we can't pay. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the free gift of salvation. We thank you that Jesus is this wonderful creditor who's absolved us of all our debt. He's not holding it against us. He's not holding it over us. He's empowering us for service. He's empowering us to walk out these doors today, to love life, to look at the sky, the green grass, people that are made in your image, and to understand that every day is a gift and a a day to look for you in all that we do and to love people as you love them. Lord, fill this church and fill that lawn with people like this woman and people like Simon that you might open their eyes. As you've done for 2,000 years, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.